0: chapter 17 of the room in the dragon volant this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth the room in the dragon volant by j sheridan chapter 17 the tenant of the palanquin the marquis called on me next day my late breakfast was still upon the table he had come he said to ask a favor an accident had happened to his carriage in the crowd on leaving the ball and he begged, if I were going into Paris, a seat in mine. I was going in, and was extremely glad of his company. He came with me to my hotel, we went up to my rooms. I was surprised to see a man seated in an easy-chair with his back towards us, reading a newspaper. He rose. It was the Count de Saint-Alire, his gold spectacles on his nose, his black wig in oily curls lying close to his narrow head, and showing like carved ebony over a repulsive visage of boxwood. His black muffler had been pulled down. His right arm was in a sling. I don't know whether there was anything unusual in his countenance that day, or whether it was but the effect of prejudice arising from all that I had heard in my mysterious interview in his park, but I thought his countenance was more strikingly forbidding than I had seen it before. I was not callous enough in the ways of sin to meet this man injured at least in intent, thus suddenly without a momentary disturbance. He smiled. "'I called, Monsieur Beckett, in the hope of finding you here,' he croaked. "'And I meditated, I fear, taking a great liberty. But my friend the Marquis d'Armonville, on whom perhaps I have some claim, will perhaps give me the assistance I require so much.' "'With great pleasure,' said the Marquis but not till after six o'clock. I must go this moment to a meeting of three or four people whom I cannot disappoint, and I know perfectly we cannot break up earlier." "'What am I to do?' exclaimed the Count. An hour would have done at all. Was ever contre so unlucky?" "'I'll give you an hour with pleasure,' said I. "'How very good of you, monsieur! I hardly dare to hope it. This business for so gay and charming a man as monsieur Becket is a little funeste pray read this note which reached me this morning. It certainly was not cheerful. It was a note stating that the body of his, the Count's, cousin, M. de Saint-Almant, who had died at his house, the Chateau Clery, had been, in accordance with his written directions, sent for burial at Père Lachaise, and with the permission of the Count de Saint-Alire, would reach his house, the Chateau de La Carque, at about ten o'clock on the night following, to be conveyed thence in a hearse, with any member of the family who might wish to attend the obsequies." "'I did not see the poor gentleman twice in my life,' said the Count. "'But this office, as he has no other kinsman, disagreeable as it is, I could scarcely decline, and so I want to attend at the office to have the book signed and the order entered. But here is another misery. By ill-luck I have sprained my thumb, and can't sign my name for a week to come. However, one name answers as well as another yours as well as mine. And as you are so good as to come with me, all will go right." Away we drove. The Count gave me a memorandum of the Christian and surnames of the deceased, his age, the complaint he died of, and the usual particulars. Also a note of the exact position in which a grave, the dimensions of which were described, of the ordinary simple kind was to be dug, between two vaults belonging to the family of St. amand The funeral, it was stated, would arrive at half-past one o'clock a.m., the next night but one, and he handed me the money with extra fees for a burial at night. It was a good deal, and I asked him, as he entrusted the whole affair to me, in whose name I should take the receipt. Not in mine, my good friend. They wanted me to become an executor, which I yesterday wrote to decline and I am informed that if the receipt were in my name, it would constitute me an executor in the eye of the law, and fix me in that position. Take it, pray, if you have no objection in your own name." "'This, accordingly, I did. You will see, by and by, why I am obliged to mention all these particulars." The Count, meanwhile, was leaning back in the carriage with his black silk muffler up to his nose, and his hat shading his eyes while he dozed in his corner in which state I found him on my return. Paris had lost its charm for me. I hurried to the little business I had to do, longed once more for my quiet room in the dragon Volant, the melancholy woods of the Château de la Carque, and the tumultuous and thrilling influence of proximity to the object of my wild but wicked romance. I was delayed some time by my stockbroker. I had a very large sum, as I told you, at my bankers, uninvested. I cared very little for a few days' interest—very little for the entire sum—compared with the image that occupied my thoughts, and beckoned me with a white arm through the dark, toward the spreading lime-trees and chestnuts of the Chateau de la Carque. But I had fixed this day to meet him, and was relieved when he told me that I had better let it lie in my banker's hands for a few days longer, as the funds would certainly fall immediately. This accident, too, was not without its immediate bearing on my subsequent adventures. When I reached the Dragon Volant, I found in my sitting-room a good deal to my chagrin—my two guests, whom I had quite forgotten. I inwardly cursed my own stupidity for having embarrassed myself with their agreeable society. It could not be helped now, however, and a word to the waiters put all things in train for dinner. Tom Whistlewick was in great force, and he commenced almost immediately with a very odd story. He told me that not only Versailles, but all Paris was in a ferment in consequence of a revolting and all but sacrilegious practical joke, played of on the night before. The pagoda, as he persisted in calling the palanquin, had been left standing on the spot where we saw it last night. Neither conjurer, nor usher, nor bearers had ever returned. When the ball closed, and the company at length retired, the servants who attended to put out the lights and secure the doors, found it still there. It was determined, however, to let it stand where it was until next morning by which time, it was conjectured, its owners would send messengers to remove it. None arrived. The servants were then ordered to take it away, and its extraordinary weight for the first time reminded them of its forgotten human occupant. Its door was forced, and judge what was their disgust when they discovered not a living man, but a corpse. Three or four days must have passed since the death of the burly man in the Chinese tunic and painted cap, Some people thought it was a trick designed to insult the allies, in whose honour the ball was got up. Others were of opinion that it was nothing worse than a daring and cynical jocularity, which, shocking as it was, might yet be forgiven to the high-spirit and irrepressible buffoonery of youth. Others, however, fewer in number and mystically given, insisted that the corpse was bona fide a necessary to the exhibition, and that the disclosures and allusions which had astonished so many people, were distinctly due to necromancy." "'The matter, however, is now in the hands of the police,' observed Monsieur Camillac, "'and we are not the body they were two or three months ago, if the offenders against propriety and public feeling are not traced and convicted, unless, indeed, they have been a great deal more cunning than such fools generally are.' I was thinking within myself how utterly inexplicable was my colloquy with the conjurer, so cavalierly dismissed by M. Camillac as a fool and the more I thought, the more marvellous it seemed. "'It certainly was an original joke, though not a very clear one,' said Whistlewick. "'Not even original,' said Carmiac. "'Very nearly the same thing was done a hundred years ago or more at a state-ball in Paris, and the rascals who played the trick were never found out.' In this Monsieur Carmiac, as I afterwards discovered, spoke truly, for among my books of French anecdote and memoirs, the very incident is marked by my own hand. While we were thus talking, the waiter told us that dinner was served, and we withdrew accordingly, my guests more than making amends for my comparative taciturnity. End of chapter seventeen.